Today's scripture is Psalm 35. You can find it on page 10 of your bulletin or projected above. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take a hold the shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong, for him the poor and needy, from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Mackenzie. Uh, okay, kids, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin earlier. You can grab that now, and there's a spot on there where you can jot down three things. There's three blanks. Uh, there are three things that I want you to listen for during the sermon. Uh, the first is an illustration about fire. Secondly, uh, there's a quote where I will say the word bear paw. And then thirdly, I want you to count the number of times I say the word justice. And it's going to be a lot, okay? So fire, bear paw, and justice. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is absolutely true, and we thank you that you've given it to us because you love us. 
And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit now, you would work with your Word to transform us. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that we would come to behold your Son, Jesus, that we would see him in all of his beauty and all of his glory, and that we might desire him above all else. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. When I, was a, uh, when I was an RUF campus minister, I heard a story from another campus minister. It was a guy named Michael Gordon. And uh, he told this story uh, about his son, whose name was Elliot, who was in uh, preschool at the time. And he said his son came home from school one day and he was like, visibly downtrodden, you know, like sad, heartbroken. And so they asked him what happened. And, uh, and, and so he says uh, that uh, apparently it had something to do with uh, what this other boy, Camden, had said to him that day. And so apparently they'd been playing together when Camden decided to call Elliot Stinky Pants. And as you might imagine, Elliot was pretty devastated by that, right? Like, who wouldn't be? Uh, but so when Michael was talking to his son that night uh, about it at the dinner table, he said that, that Elliot got really sad and quiet and that it made Michael, his dad, sad and quiet because it was this kind of profound moment of grieving together and uh, like actually experiencing the wrong of the world. But then Elliot breaks the silence and he says, he called me stinky pants, so we're gonna light him on fire. <laughs> Which is amazing, of course, right? <laughs> and so uh, here's the thing about it. Um, while that might be a little bit of an overreaction, um, what Elliot's doing there is actually saying pretty much uh, exactly what all of us think or feel in the face of that kind of injustice and wrong, right? And so everybody knows uh, that feeling to some degree, right? And it could be something uh, really small and insignificant, like getting called a name on the, play, uh, on the playground, right? But it could also be something that's huge. A situation where a parent or a, a friend or a classmate has said something to you that has so harmed you that it has actually changed the way that you view yourself now. These words that have been so painful and so hurtful to you. It could be that, that, that maybe somebody's done something to you or done something in your family that is so hurtful and so wrong that it could only be described as evil. And here's the thing, if you have faced something like that and you are honest with the feelings that arise in the face of that sort of thing, what you feel more than anything else is this longing for revenge, this longing to retaliate, and we could say it this way, it's a longing for justice. Because there's a part of you deep down that knows what that person did is wrong. And so here's the thing about it. If you're one here who has put your faith in Jesus, you'd call yourself a Christian. We don't assume everybody here would, be, would call themselves that. But if you are, then trying to figure out what the God-honoring, Christ-like response to that feeling is really hard to do. Because uh, here's the thing, my, my, my guess is that most of us would probably recognize the, the, the sinful, unhealthy aspects of that desire for vengeance. Because you know that, that Jesus calls us to forgiveness. He says that those who have received forgiveness are, are to be those who extend forgiveness. We know that Jesus himself, as he's hanging on the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so obviously, that has to be a part of our response. But I think we're probably less likely to recognize that the good aspect of that desire for justice, even if it's sometimes misdirected. So let me say it this way. There is something that is good 
and appropriate and even godly about the anger that you feel at mistreatment and injustice. And the reason I say that is that God actually experiences that same anger towards injustice. And it's because God loves his people and he loves his world so much, he's wholly opposed to evil. And he's committed to making everything right. And so when you feel that anger towards evil in this world and the sense of a longing for justice, there is something that is right about that. So for example, you hear about human trafficking, that should make you angry. Or when you hear about the, the, uh, of children being exploited and harmed, that should stir something deep within you. So here's how Clinton McCann puts it. He says, in the face of monstrous evil, the worst possible response is to feel nothing. What must be felt is grief, rage, and outrage. In their absence, evil becomes an acceptable commonplace. Here's the hard thing about this, though. It's really hard to know what to do with those feelings of grief and rage and outrage. And so here's the question that I want to wrestle some with. What does it look like to acknowledge that desire for justice on the one hand, but to do something with it that isn't vindictive and sinful? And this is another place where the Psalms are so helpful to us because what you get all over the Psalms and what you get specifically in Psalm 35 is this picture of what it looks like to faithfully experience that desire for justice. So what do you do when you or someone you love is horribly wronged and you're so angry about it? Or what do you do when there are people coming at you and it doesn't feel like it's ever gonna stop, you don't know how to make it stop? Well, what Psalm 35 says is that you pray for justice. You pray for justice. And so I immediately need to make a couple of qualifications here. One is this. To say that we must pray in the face of injustice is not to say that prayer is the only thing that we do in the face of injustice. And the Bible's super clear about this. So uh, God calls his people over and over again to work for justice in the world. So a couple of examples of this. This is exactly what uh, God says to the prophet Micah. He's told you, O oh man, what is good? And what, is God, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before your God? And then fast forward to the, the New Testament, actually this is in the Old Testament as well. Some of the harshest words that the prophets have for Israel and then for those religious leaders in Jesus' day is that they failed to seek justice for the oppressed. So Isaiah 1, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So we're called to do justice. But here's what we need to see. An absolutely vital part of doing justice is actually praying for justice. So Eugene Park says it this way, this is in your bulletin. When we pray and in times of injustice, we are protesting to the highest authority in the universe, the perfect arbiter of all justice. As human beings made in the image of, God, of, of the God of justice, prayer is our foundational path to justice. So that's one thing that we've gotta see, that to say we need to pray is, to say, is not to say that's the only thing we should do. Secondly, in focusing on praying in the face of injustice, 
The Bible's not saying that you need to stay in a dangerous or an abusive situation. That's not at all what the Bible says. If you are in a situation where you are being harmed, please tell somebody. Please do all that you can to remove yourself from that situation. And so I I wanna be clear that to say that we should pray in the face of injustice is not to say that we shouldn't do other things. We should. But we've got to pray in the face of it. And so here's the question that we want to ask and answer. How do, what do we do with this longing for justice? Three things. Here's the first. First, we cry out for rescue. We cry out for rescue. So a little bit of context here. Um, this is another one of those psalms where we don't know the exact circumstances that, that, uh, that arose that, uh, for David to begin writing it. So there, there are a lot of these psalms where, uh, where David has enemies coming after him. And there are times throughout his life where he's got people who are slandering him, they're speaking evil against him, and in some cases, they're literally trying to take his life. Whatever the circumstance was, this was one of them. But here's the thing that we've seen over and over again as we've looked at the Psalms this summer. This language is once again specific enough to where you know that this really did happen, that this applies to real circumstances. And at the same time, though, it's general enough to apply in all sorts of different circumstances. And so the, the, the first thing that David does as these people are coming after him is to cry out to the Lord to fight for him. So verse one, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. And so uh, David's using these legal terms here, and it's actually the language of the law court. And he goes on to use some, uh, some military language after this, uh, most think, though, that this is still talking about this law court imagery, and this makes sense for this reason. If people are speaking false accusations against him, then what, what David needs is for God to come to his defense. And so here's what he's doing. Uh, he's taking his need, he's taking his fear, and he's taking his desire for justice to the Lord. And, and, and here is why I think this is so important for us to see. It's because what he realizes is that he's got a problem here that he can't fix himself. He's got a situation that he can't stop. He can't fix and stop the evil things that they're saying and doing about him. And and here's why I think that's so helpful for us to see. Because while no doubt you don't have people coming after your life like this, like, like David did, it may be that you do have a situation where the wrong being done to you is so complex And the situation is so messy that you have no idea how to stop it, even if you had the power to. And so part of what you see David doing here is turning to the Lord in his desperation and crying out for help because he knows he can't stop it. And the other reason to see that this is so important is that I think going to the Lord for rescue is probably not gonna be your go-to when you feel that desire for vengeance. I think, again, if we're honest, the go-to that you feel at that point is to try to take things into your own hand, to do all you can to return uh, the the evil onto this person that they've done to you. And I want you to see that's not what David does. That from the start, what he does is to take his need to the Lord and to ask him to do something about it. Look to verses four through eight. What What he does here is he gets more specific. So he starts asking God to do something to his enemies. And so specifically, he prays his enemies, uh, that, that his enemies' efforts are gonna fail. 
So look back to verses four through eight. You get a picture here first of what they're trying to do to David. So verse four, they're trying to seek his life. Again, verse four, they're, they're devising evil against him. Skip down to verse seven. It says they've hidden a net for him and they've dug a pit for him to fall into. So this is the um, kind of language you'd use for hunting, like setting up a trap for somebody. And here's the thing about all this. They're doing every bit of this without cause. And David says that multiple times throughout the psalm, that he didn't do anything to deserve any bit of this. And yet they're still coming after him. But then the other thing that you get in this section, though, is a picture of what David is asking God to do to them. And so um, these requests are, are often called imprecatory prayers. And so all that means is that uh, th these are prayers that are asking God to, to, to bring about his just judgment on those who are actively and intentionally doing evil to God's people. They're asking God to act, to stop them from doing these evil things, to foil their plans, and, and even to, says to, to bring the evil onto them that they're trying to inflict on David. You see this in verse eight. Let the net that, he, they, that they hid for them, or that he hid, ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. So he's begging God to do something about it, to stop them. So here's the deal. You hear that, um, and, and this might make you super uncomfortable, right? Understandably so. You think, this makes me uncomfortable to think about asking God to do something like that. And I, I, there are all kinds of reasons why that's true, but I think one of them at least, uh, one of the reasons it makes us uncomfortable is that this doesn't sound like something that a loving God should do. This sounds harsh right? And I, it could be that it almost sounds frightening to think about praying this way. And, and part of that is because it can seem like God's justice and his judgment is at least in tension with his love, right? If not in outright contradiction to it. And so how do we make sense of that? That the Bible affirms both God's justice and at the same time totally affirms his love. How do those two things fit together? Well, in this way, God's justice and judgment is actually an expression of his love. It's an expression of his love. How so? Well, it's because God loves his people and he loves his world so much that one day he's going to wash it clean of all of the sin, all of the brokenness, all of the evil, and all of the death that has come on it. And it is his commitment to his justice that is the guarantee that that is going to happen one day. And so if that feels uncomfortable to you, I want you to just think about something for a moment. I want you to try to imagine that the opposite is true. In other words, what if God wasn't opposed to evil? What if God saw evil and injustice in his world and he just let it happen with no consequence? That would be absolutely terrible. And it would be awful because ultimately it would be unloving. It's because of God's love for his people and his world that he's actually opposed to sin and evil in his world. And I think uh, one of the most powerful illustrations of this uh, is from a Croatian theologian. His name's Miroslav Volf. Uh, he wrote this book called Exclusion and Embrace. And it came from these lectures that he gave in the 1990s when he was in uh, then Yugoslavia. And, and uh, there was all of this horrifying violence and attempted genocide that was happening in that moment. And so part of what he says is that he talks about how it makes us feel uncomfortable to talk about God judging evil 
and, and to judge evildoers. But then he goes on to say that the, the only reason that we feel that way is because we haven't had true violence and injustice inflicted upon us. So here's what he says. I suggest imagining that you were delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. See, God's justice is good news to David because he knows that God is opposed to evil. And because he knows that's true, he cries out to the Lord to deliver him and to rescue him. And so that's part of the way that we respond to that, that desire for justice and for vengeance, is to cry out for rescue. Here's the second. We pour out our sadness and grief. We pour out our sadness and grief. And so uh, what David does in the middle portion is he, he turns to this section of lament. And um, again, if you've been with us this summer, uh, it, it feels sort of like we've talked about lament every single week, right, in every psalm. Um, so I was kind of thinking about this week and thinking about that this week and not wanting to repeat myself. Um, and then I realized this, it's not me that's repeating myself, right? It's the Bible. It's God who, who, who's, who's putting these examples of lament in the Psalms over and over again. And that's not by accident. There is something that he really wants his people to see about how David handles his feelings of remorse, of grief, of anguish. And what you see, what he does with those feelings of sorrow and grief is to pour them out before the Lord. And so here's what he says about what his enemies are doing to him. Verse 11, he says, they're accusing him of things he didn't do. That's what he means where he had this kind of weird phrase of by asking me of things I do not know. People are saying things about him that aren't true. Verse 12, he says he's tried to do good to these, uh, these other people, and yet they've responded with evil. He describes it in verses uh, 13 and 14. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. That's what he did when they were sick. Look what they did to him when he suffered, though. Verses 15 and 16. They rejoiced. They gathered against him. They celebrated his suffering. And maybe the worst part of all in all of this is that the Lord seemed distant to him. Verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? And what's implied there is that the Lord is looking on and that he's not doing anything about it. And I think, here's something, again, that's so important to see. See, in, in the face of God's seeming absence, what David does is something that we probably wouldn't expect. He actually goes to the Lord with those doubts, with those frustrations, with that grief, with that sorrow. And he says, Lord, what's going on? How long are you going to look on and not do anything about this? How are you going to watch all of this happen to me? and not do anything about it. And so he pours his heart out before the Lord. He takes all of his grief, all of his questions, all of his doubts, and all of his sorrow, and he presents it before him. 
So um, this past week, I read uh, Harrison Scott Key's new book. It's called um, How to Stay Married. And um, it is a brutal book because it's uh, his own personal account of his wife's infidelity. And uh, the thing is, if you're familiar with his work, like, he's absolutely hilarious. Like, he's a humorist. And, uh, and so he's writing this memoir, and there are parts that are literally like laugh-out-loud funny. And then there are parts that are completely and absolutely gut-wrenching. And uh, I think one of the most painful and at the same time beautiful parts came when he found out that his wife was cheating on him a second time. And so what he does in that moment is he calls his pastor and he calls his two other best friends, has them over to the house. They go outside uh, back around the campfire and uh, he tells them all what's going on and just lays it all out before him. And so uh, later on that evening, they get up to leave. His pastor, Soren, tells him that he loves him. And the way that Key describes this is that it felt like it was a moment where he experienced God's love for him. And then here's what he says happened after that. Soren, this is his pastor, Soren threw himself to the earth and put his head on the gravel of my backyard and prayed like a man in the Bible. I cried so much as he prayed that I felt my body would burst. He prayed for revelation, apocalypse, miracles. There was no Calvin, this was no Calvinist prayer of highborn abstraction. This prayer named names. As he prayed, Jason reached over and put his great big bear paw on my knee. Jimbo cried almost more than I did. All three men prayed and then left, and I sat there in the dark alone. The light of the dying embers of the fire refracted by the prism of my tears. That is what lament looks like. And part of what we are called to do in that moment of wanting vengeance and justice is to take all of that hurt, all of that sorrow, and all of that grief, and to give it all to the Lord in lament. And the reason that you can do that is because the God of the Bible is a God of justice. And so thirdly and finally, what David does is he appeals to God's righteousness. And so uh, what he does in this last section of the psalm is he covers a lot of the same ground. So we're not going to look at all, all these verses in this final section. He asks God to, to not let them rejoice over, the, over him. He, tells, uh, he, he describes more of what they've done to him and hating him without cause. And then the way that they've, uh, they've done all this harm to God's people in the land. Here's what I want you to look at specifically. It's the reason that David can pray this prayer. Verse 22. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself from my vindication, from my cause, my God and my Lord. So he starts with this personal plea. Do something. Look at verse 24 then. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. Do you hear what David's saying there? He's saying, I know who you are as my God. I know that you are going to do something about this because you are a God of righteousness. You really are the righteous one. You really are the one who, in verse 10, delivers the poor. You really are the one who, according to verse 27, delights in the welfare or the shalom of your people. And because I know that's true, I'm gonna cry out to you to do that now. And David can do that and pray this way and trust the Lord in that place because God has made those promises to him. Here's the thing about that though. 
we've actually gotten to see the fulfillment of those promises. Because Jesus is the true king, the one who comes bringing true justice, bringing true shalom into this world. Here's the hard thing about that, though. That true shalom is not here yet. We are here still talking about all of the evil, all of the injustice in our world, and we're talking about all the evil and the injustice in our own lives. So what does this mean for us? How are we supposed to make sense of all that? Here's what it means. It means that the true justice that your heart and my heart and our world longs for, the kind of justice that's spoken of here in Psalm 35, is only ultimately going to come when Jesus returns. When Jesus, in the words of Revelation 21, says, Behold, I am making all things new. And here's the deal. You might hear that and you think, like, that's great. Like, that is legitimate future hope for me. And you have to have that. Well, what does that mean for right now? Because that can be super discouraging, especially when you are looking into the face of the injustice that you're experiencing in your own life. And so here's the question. How can you be sure that Jesus really will one day return and that he really will one day bring full and final justice? Well, it's because he suffered the greatest injustice the world has ever known. That this perfectly righteous, perfectly innocent one was put to death in the place of those who were guilty and unrighteous. And so Jesus actually quotes Psalm 35 in John 15, and he says, they hated me without cause. And here's the beautiful thing about this, though. That true king did that for you and for me. He suffered the consequences of our sin, of our injustice, so that you would never have to. And three days later, he rose from the dead, and it's his resurrection, that resurrection from the dead, that actually guarantees that evil and injustice won't get the final word. And that instead, one day, this shalom, this long-hoped-for and prayed-for shalom of all things being made right will be here. And the beautiful thing is that that forgiveness and that future is offered to you right now. This king invites you and he calls you to put your faith and your hope in him and to receive that hope as your own. I invite you to do that now. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves justice, that you are a God who will one day make right all wrongs, and that you've shown yourself to be fully, completely trustworthy by giving your son for us. And so, Father, we pray that we would look to you, that we would cry out to you, that we would know that you hear us. And we pray, Lord, for that day to come soon when your son will return to make all things new. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen.